Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are a good God and a good King. And you love to speak to us. You love to grow us. You love to meet with us through singing, through worship, through the community, the church coming together, but also through the word. And I pray that as I read from Nehemiah chapter 8 and preach, Lord God, you would speak. I pray that those who need to be encouraged would be encouraged this morning. I pray that those who need to be challenged would be challenged this morning, Lord God. And I just ask that this is a, this is a moment where you do your work, you have your way. Uh, and this is also worship as we read and hear the word preached. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm preaching on a revival this morning. Because that is what I think happens in Nehemiah chapter 8. Revival in the city of Jerusalem. A revival is a work of God in which a whole region or city of many churches and many people are lifted out of spiritual indifference and worldliness into a conviction of sin, into an earnest desire for more of Jesus Christ and his word. There's a purity of life that comes. There's lots of conversions, people giving their lives to Jesus Christ, people hearing the gospel and responding, and there's joyful worship in the midst of a revival. It's a work of God in his sovereignty, in his wisdom. He pours out the Holy Spirit and there's these moments where the church gathered and people who've never believed in Christ before come and say God is here and they give their lives to Jesus. This is what happens when revivals take place, a work of God in which people lift out spiritual indifference into an earnest desire for Jesus Christ. And this is what happens in Nehemiah chapter 8. There's a revival for the whole city of Jerusalem. And what we realise is that the first six chapters that were all about rebuilding the wall were just a prequel to something wonderful that was going to happen after the wall was finished. So in chapter 6, Dio preached on it last week, they finished building the wall of Jerusalem and then God calls the whole city and does a work in their midst in chapter 8. So, We don't normally do this, but I'm going to invite you to stand up as I read from Nehemiah chapter 8. So would you stand as I read this chapter to you? There's a few names in here, but nothing like what Jason had to go through. Let's let's stand as I read from God's holy word in Nehemiah chapter 8. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood Mattitiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah. On his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. 
For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Barney, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the meaning so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord, the law. Then he said to them, Go on your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as is written. So the people went out and brought them, and made booze for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths, and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. You can sit down again. From that text that I've just read to you, from this story of revival in the city of Jerusalem, I firstly want to draw your attention to the hunger for God's word That was apparent in that story. My first point this morning, a hunger for God's word. Notice in verse verse 1, it's not Ezra or Nehemiah who says, hey, come, I'm going to stand all morning and read the word of the law to you. Um, You should come and listen to me. No, it's the people who ask Ezra the scribe to read the law. They say, Ezra, would you read us the law? Would you come? They told Ezra the scribe, it says in verse 1, to bring the book of the law of Moses. It's the people who have this hunger to hear the word of God read. And so Ezra responds to that request. And he reads to them the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So every time you see the word law in this text, don't think necessarily just a long list of rules. Think about Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. Stories from the book of Genesis. Yes, lists of laws in places. Uh, for instance, in the book of Leviticus, but also stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these other great people. Moses, the story of the Exodus as well. This is what Ezra is reading to these people as he stands on this platform in this square. 
So notice in verse 1, it's the people who say, come and read to us the law. Have a look at verse 3. They listen to the law from early morning to midday. And the Hebrew word for early morning really means dawn. So this is dawn until midday, probably about six hours these people are standing and listening to the Torah being read to them. It says also in verse 3, their ears were attentive. I wonder whether your ears became inattentive during Nehemiah chapter 7 at any point, or maybe during Nehemiah chapter 8 when I was reading to it. Or did your ears remain attentive to the word that was being read? I'm astounded, really, that in verse 5 it says that the people stood up. Not only were they listening, not only were they saying to Ezra, come and read the word, they were also standing for that length of time. I can only imagine how they were feeling as they stood for that long. I don't know whether they must have had stronger legs than I do, because I like to sit down. Um, and imagine I got you guys to all stand up all the way through my talk at this moment. You would, I, could, I know there'd be some grumpy faces at some point. Like just, I think Jeff, probably, back corner, would look at me. <laughs> yeah. There's a respect shown to the word of God by the people of Jerusalem. There's an honour shown to the word of God by these people in Jerusalem. There's a hunger. None of them wandered off to go and do something else that morning. All of them stood and listened to the word being read. In verse 6, Ezra, as he's reading, as he's teaching, blesses the Lord. And the people respond. They say, Amen, Amen. And they lift their hands and they bow their heads and they worship the Lord. They're not just listening to the word of God. But they are responding. Amen means, I agree, I agree, truly, truly. And they're worshipping. They're they're hearing the the law of God read, and the words they're hearing are leading them to worship. In verse 7, they're not just suffering the reading of the law of God, they're also listening to these other leaders and people teaching the law to them. This list of people and these Levites bringing understanding. I don't know how it will have worked, whether Ezra read a short passage and then stopped for a moment and said, this is what I've just read to you, this is what it means. Or whether he read a long passage and then they split into groups and the different Levites and the different people explained what was going on. But you can see very, very clearly here, here is a group of people, here is a whole city just honouring God, worshipping God by listening and giving their ears, making their ears attentive to the law of God, to the word of God. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you a Christian who is attentive to God's word? Is that how you describe yourself? You are someone who is attentive to God's word. Are you devoting time and energy to listen to the word of God read or to read it yourself, not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout the week? Are you, are you someone who, you know, maybe you're not standing up for six hours and putting on a, someone reading the law to you, but are you someone who's saying, actually, I'm going to give a good portion of my day, I'm going to give 15 minutes, I'm going to give all my attention, all my energy for 15 minutes to read the word of God on a daily basis? Can you even imagine standing up for six hours? and listening to the Bible being read to you? If the answer to those questions is is no, you're not attentive to the word of God, you're not devoting time and energy to it, you can't imagine standing up and listening to the Bible being read to you for six hours, 
Can I encourage you that this is a prompt and a conviction from God? And God wants to say to you, have a greater hunger for my word, like these people in Nehemiah chapter 8. There are people in this world who love Lord of the Rings. They love Tolkien. And they spend hours reading not only the Lord of the Rings book, but also the Hobbits, and I think it's called the Cimmerillion. Some of them even learn the Elvish language in order to get really invested and understand what's going going on in a book of fantasy, the Lord of the Rings. There are some people who love cooking and they collect recipe books and they love to open their recipe books and look up new things to cook and they devote time and energy to studying. And, you know, there's some people who read recipes and actually do what the recipes say rather than just making it up as they go along like I like to do. I start with a recipe, realise I've only got half the ingredients and just throw in other things instead. There are people devoting time and energy to Lord of the Rings. There are people devoting time and energy to reading cookbooks and recipe books. But Christians who claim to love God are not investing that same energy, that same dedication, that same love into reading and hearing God's word. Do you know this book is God-breathed? This book, the author of this book, yes it was written with human hands, but the author of this book is the Holy Spirit, God himself, the third person of the Trinity. And if you love God, you will love his word. Because this is, the mean, this is the primary means in which God has chosen to reveal himself to us. The person of Christ. Jesus Christ was the greatest revelation of God in human history. And God gave us his word in order that we could read about Jesus' life. And see what Jesus is like. And therefore understand who God is. If you love God, you will read this book. And you will devote time and energy to reading it. You will honour it. And not only that, but having read it, you will seek to understand it. Maybe you'll go and find out teachers and, and preachers, and, and, and maybe you'll buy commentaries, perhaps, even. You'll want to understand what you're reading. So it's not just, oh, I've read Nehemiah chapter 8 now, let's close my Bible. Bible reading done. Didn't mean anything to me. Didn't make any difference to my life whatsoever. But I've read the Bible, so I've done what I need to do. No. These, these people were listening not only to the word being read, but also to the teaching and gaining understanding. And not only gaining understanding but moving into worship and praise of God. And I want to invite us as a church, as a people, to be those who love reading and studying God's word because when we read God's word, when we see the the compassion of Christ in the Gospels, for example, when we see the power of God in creation, when we see him speaking to us so wonderfully through the word, that moves us into prayer and worship and praise. Do you want to be a worshipful person? Do you want to be someone who sings the praises of God? Well, let the word lead you to that place of worship and praise. I believe that God wants to challenge us in giving us a greater desire for the word and challenge us to create a habit of reading the word. If you, if you want to be a good Bible reader, you need to have desire and habits, both of those things together. You know, the Christian life is not just external laws imposed from the outside on our life. No, the Christian life is meant to flow from the heart. When you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit was given to you as a gift, and he dwells in your heart, and he changes what you love and what you desire to do. And so your desires are shaped by the Holy Spirit. So it's not, here's a law, oh, I must do it. No, it's, God is with me, and I love God, and therefore my desires are changed, and therefore I want to read the word. 
And, and so maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know what, I, I understand what you're saying, Duncan, I kind of agree with it, but I just don't have that desire, I just don't, I just don't have that hunger that you're talking about. Well, the encouragement to you is to pray and say, Holy Spirit, give me this hunger, give me this desire, may I really long to read the word. May it not feel intimidating even to stand for six hours listening to the Lord. I just love it, I just want to know more, I just want to consume as much of God's word as possible. And so I pray today that God would pour out his Holy Spirit in power and give us this desire to read God's word. But also, out of that desire, let's form habits. Let's set aside time. Maybe you're an early morning person, and you you say, this is the time every day I'm going to read my Bible because I have a desire to know God better. I love God, and out of my love for God, I'm going to devote time and energy to this. Be be people of desire, but also try and create habits and, and routine to help you do this better. If you are already someone who has this desire, who has this hunger, who has this habit of reading God's word and listening to it read, can I encourage you, are you also seeking understanding? Where can you go to grow your understanding? And secondly, are you letting your reading lead you to worship? It would be a sad state of affairs if we were simply to be creatures of habit who read this word and it never brought us to worship the Lord, if it didn't impact our hearts. These aren't just words written on a page. These, this is God speaking to us and revealing himself to us. And so when I read the Bible, it affects my heart and leads me to praise and to sing and to praise the God who has revealed himself so wonderfully. You know, maybe Nehemiah 7 isn't the chapter that really gets your heart pumping, but there are some wonderful parts of this word that really do. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, it says in Ephesians 1 verse 3. That's a verse that, wow, every spiritual blessing in Christ. I'm going to stop there after I've read one verse and I'm going to praise God for how he has blessed me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved. He loves. He lo- and he loves the world. And he loves sinners like me. And he loves me so much that Jesus died for me on the cross so that I might not perish, but I might not have eternal life. How can you not read that verse? I just need to worship God for all that he's done for me. So let's be people who study, who read, who listen to the word of God, who make, who, who incre- let's increase our desire and hunger for the word, and let's make a habit of reading it, but also let's understand it, and let's be led into that place of worshipping and praising our God, who has given us this word. Pray this morning for a hunger for God's word, and pray for worship arising out of that time. And since In Jerusalem, there was this massive revival. Multiple people came to this place of hungering for God's word. Let's not just pray for ourselves. Let's also pray for our town. And let's pray for our neighbours and our friends and our family. Let's pray for this region. Let's ask not only that we ourselves as Christians would be hungry for God's word and passionate in worship, but also that God would start to stir up people to have this same hunger so that they would be coming to us and saying, can you explain the law of God to me? Can you explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to me? Wouldn't that be amazing if people were just walking off the street going, I just want to understand something of the Bible. Let's pray that God would do that in this place. So as revival comes, there's a hunger for God's word in Nehemiah chapter 8. 
Secondly, in the passage, would you give your attention to the joy that people find in God in this story? Initially, as the law was being read, the people wept, didn't they, in verse 9? The people wept as they heard the words of the law. And I suspect the reason they were weeping is because they were saying, we haven't read this for so many centuries. Or if we have if we have heard this, we haven't lived this out, we've disobeyed. I think the people were weeping because they're saying, it says in God's law that we were to act this way, and we have not done that. This is sad to hear the words of the law being read. They're weeping with conviction at the things they've done wrong. They would hear this great story in the Torah of the Jews being rescued out of slavery in Egypt, being led through the wilderness into the promised land of Israel. And they, at that point, they probably weren't weeping, they're probably going, what a great story. But then they realise that once they were in the promised land, over generations, the people of Israel forgot God. They ignored his commands. They forgot to read, they forgot to hold the feast, they forgot to obey the commands. And as a consequence of their sin, they were judged by God and they were invaded and conquered and taken into exile. And so that would have caused tears to flow. God brought us a wonderful salvation out of slavery in Egypt. But now, but now, look at our city. We've returned, but it's been generations and years of difficulty and struggle. What a sad thing to respond. But look at what Ezra and Nehemiah say in verse 10. The people are weeping at the law being read. Ezra and Nehemiah in verse 10 say, Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the people respond to that command. In verse 12, all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. At the end of verse 17 as well, it says, there was very great rejoicing. So they hear the word and they initially mourn and then they're told the joy of the Lord is your strength and they respond and they rejoice. And the people are exhibiting here not just a hunger for God's word, but also joy in God. Joy in God. Hear the words of Jesus in John 15, verse 11. This is what Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Those are the words of Jesus in John chapter 15. Do you see what that reveals? Is that Jesus wants his followers, wants his disciples, wants Christians to know and experience full joy. The teaching in John chapter 15 that Jesus brings, that you can go away and read if you're hungry for God's word this morning, are designed to bring a joy in his disciples, a full joy. And here's the thing, people look for joy in all sorts of different places. They look for joy in success and accomplishments. You know, when my career goes really well, I get that promotion or I achieve this thing, when I perhaps win that Olympic gold medal, that's where my joy comes from. You know, different achievements in life, that's where you might look for joy. Maybe you look for joy in wealth and possessions and all the things you can buy with money that you've earned. Maybe you look for joy in entertainment. Oh, I'm feeling a bit miserable. I'm going to switch on my favourite TV programme or watch my favourite movie. Maybe you look for joy in or in travelling and seeing the world. Maybe you look for joy in friendship and family. Now, lots of those things are good gifts, and there is joy to be found in those things. But 
if that's where you go for your ultimate joy, if that's where you, if that's where you look for your greatest joy, then you're in trouble because none of those things ever bring full and complete joy. N- never, ever. If you have great success, you know, for a moment you might have pleasure and happiness, but then you're looking for the next success, the next accomplishment, the next gold medal. I don't think we've got any Olympians in here, but um, I've been watching the Olympics fairly recently, so it's just on my mind. You know, you, you have one success and then you look for the next one. If, you're, if you find your joy in wealth, you're never satisfied. You just want to earn more and more and keep building up your wealth and your possessions and so on and so forth. With all these things, if you look for your joy outside of God, you will never be satisfied because nothing else other than Jesus Christ gives Full joy. And this is what we're called to as Christians. Full joy in the Lord. Joy in God. Philippians 3 verse 1 says, Rejoice in the Lord. The joy that is found in God is a deep, lasting, spiritual happiness that isn't dependent on earthly circumstances, but who God is. For most of you, if you are Christian, the moments when you've experienced this joy most completely and most wonderfully will probably be moments where you're gathered with the church or gathered with large numbers of Christians and you're singing songs of worship to God. Why is it that those moments are the moments where we've experienced this joy? I hope you know what I'm talking about. I hope you find a joy in singing praise to God. I hope you can think of these times where you've just been singing praise to God with, with the company of believers, with the church, and you felt this deepness of joy. Why is it that those moments are the moments where we experience joy? It's because in those moments we have fixed our attention on God in his glory. In those moments where you're just lost in singing the praises of the king, singing about his majesty, singing about his creation, singing about his gospel and his salvation, and so you're fixed on God and his glory. And you're also surrounded by fellow believers who are encouraging you in that as well. As together you're fixed on God in his glory. And we experience these wonderful moments of deep joy in our heart. I believe we can experience more of the joy that Jesus speaks about in John 15 if in everyday life we make a priority of focusing on God's glory through everything we do. Not just when the music's blaring and sounds really good and the words are on the screen and you're focused on God and his glory in those moments, but throughout every day, everything that you do. Christians, see the love and the power and the beauty of God in everything you do. Think upon those things. Fix your attention on those things. And of course, we as Christians know that we see the love, power and beauty of God most clearly in Jesus Christ. The people of Jerusalem didn't have the revelation of Jesus Christ to talk about and declare and shout about, but we do. And so I want to encourage you to see the glory of Christ in song and Bible reading, in prayer, but also in the morning and in the afternoon and in the evening, in eating and working and resting. Fix your mind upon how awesome God is. And I believe that from that will flow the joy that is spoken about in Scripture. Give God's beauty and Christ's magnificence your attention and you will begin to know and experience this joy spoken about in the Bible. 
But not just joy, because notice what Nehemiah says in verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not just joy, but also there's strength to be found in the joy that is given by God. Humans are weak. We have failing bodies. We have vulnerable minds. We probably have more weaknesses than strength. And I don't know, in my experience, as you get older, you realise more and more of your weaknesses, and you just realise how weak and, and rubbish you truly are. Um, so if there's anyone young who doesn't think they have any weaknesses, you do, you have plenty of weaknesses. We, we probably have more weaknesses than strengths. Humans are weak. But Christians can tap into an undying, supernatural, spiritual strength when we find this joy of the Lord by focusing on God's glory and God's power rather than our own circumstances and our own weaknesses. That means in every circumstance, Christians can rejoice. Whatever you're going through, you can rejoice because no one can ever take God away from you. Salvation is eternal. God's mercies never fail and Christ never changes. So we can always, in every circumstance, fix our attention on the glory of God and rejoice. And in rejoicing in every circumstance, that is strength. That's real strength, isn't it? Being able to rejoice wherever you find yourself. I think about um, some of the stories in the Bible of people in prison and singing hymns. You know, Philippians, that I quoted from earlier, was written by Paul while he was in prison. He was not in a good situation. He was weighing up in that letter whether he was going to die or whether he was going to survive and be released from prison. And yet he writes this letter that's called the Epistle of Joy because he tells the Philippians to rejoice over and over and over again. How can he do that? How can he continue to rejoice? Because he's focused on the glory of God. He's rejoicing in the Lord. He's not rejoicing about the fact he's in prison, but he's rejoicing in who God is and all that God has done. And so again, as we pray for a greater desire and hunger for the word of God, let's also pray for joy. Let us be a joyful people. And again, pray for yourself that you would know the joy of the Lord, you would find this strength that comes from rejoicing in God, but also pray it for this region, pray it for your neighbours again. Lord, Lord, I pray you would break their joy in other things, in a sense. May they realise that they can't find full joy in those things, in order that they might find joy in Christ. And, what, and who he is and what he has done. So as this revival takes place in Jerusalem, there's a hunger for God's word, there's a joy in God, they're full of rejoicing. Thirdly, they don't just hear the word of God, they obey it. It seems like they're reading the law on the second day and suddenly they go, this day is holy to the Lord. This, this day is holy to God. This is a day of ob- observing the Feast of Booths. They probably get to Leviticus 23 in their reading of the law. And suddenly they go, there's supposed to be a feast on right now. What are we doing? And so they send everyone away. Eat, rejoice. Go and get palm branches. Go and make temporary tents and booths um, on the roofs of your houses or in the streets and the squares. Wherever you go, just go and make tents, basically. This is what happens in the Feast of Booths. They eat lots of food, they rejoice, and they sit under palm branches and lots of leaves. And the reason they do that is because in Leviticus 23 verse 43, God God speaks to his people and he says, I want you to remember that after I brought you out of Egypt, the whole nation lived in tents in the wilderness. And so this celebration that is meant to happen every year, the Jews are meant to, you know, create tents, build tents for themselves, sit and eat and remember that God brought them out of slavery in Egypt And then they went through this in-between phase where they were in the wilderness, travelling towards the promised land. 
That's what this celebration is all about. And so they read it in Leviticus, and they go, well, we better do it. We can't just, if we're going to honour God, we can't just read the word and celebrate and understand it. No, we've got to actually do what it says. So let's hold the Feast of Booths. And you can imagine this, this swarm of the city going out to where the trees are and, and getting as many leaves as they can. And, you know, the perfumers, again, I've mentioned them a few times in this series, I don't think they would have built the best tents. No, the builders, they would have built some really fantastic tents. If I was there, I would have built a pretty rubbish tent, I think, because that's not really my thing, like knitting leaves together to create shade but you know all these people creating tents and then sitting and remembering and rejoicing that God brought them out of slavery in Egypt towards the promised land and God's timing is just perfect I think his timing in this story is perfect because as they remember that they were brought out of slavery in Egypt these people in the city of Jerusalem are saying well we've just come back from Persia we've just we were taken into exile and we were slaves in Persia and now we're back in Jerusalem God's brought us out of slavery again. God's shown his faithfulness and his love to us all over again. I can see that that increasing their joy and celebration as they sit under these palm trees and leaves. It's amazing. It says in verse 17 that not since the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, that's Joshua by the Joshua, the son of Nun, had the whole city joined in this festival and celebrated it so fully and so joyfully. That's nearly a thousand years previous by the way so they're basically saying no one celebrated this festival this feast of booths the way we have for a thousand years that's the level of joy that's the level of participation that's how much they're going for it as they celebrate not only god bringing them out of slavery in egypt but also god bringing them back out of exile in persia now in the wilderness when they first lived in tents they would have looked back at the salvation that god had brought to them I said, yes, we're free from Egypt. But they also would have looked forward to the promised land. We're on a journey. These te- the reason we're in tents is because this is temporary abode. This is not where we're here to stay. We're on a journey to somewhere new. We're going to the promised land. As Christians, we don't celebrate the Feast of Booths. I'm not suggesting that we all go out and make tents, probably buy tents for ourselves this afternoon, and sit in our tents and celebrate the salvation of God. But Jesus Christ gives us a different feast to celebrate. He gives us the feast of the Lord's Supper. And in the feast of the Lord's Supper, Christians look back and remember that Jesus died on the cross. And when he did that, he took sin upon himself. And as he died, he died in our place as a punishment for our sins in order to break the slavery of sin in our lives. And so all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, all who believe in Jesus' life, death and resurrection from the dead, have a redemption moment to look back at. I was once a slave to sin. I was once under this punishment of sin, which is death. I was once trapped. I was not free. But Jesus died to free me. And so we have a redemption moment to look back on, a freedom from slavery to look back on. And and when we take the bread and we we drink the juice, we remember Jesus' body and blood that were given for us in, or, in order to rescue us out of slavery. But we also look forward. We also look forward. And we don't live in tents, but we do live in a temporary situation here on earth. You know, Pharaoh or wherever you're from, isn't your home. Your home is, is in the new heavens and the new earth, when Christ will return. And he will come again in glory and every knee will bow and he will put the world to rights. Evil and death and sorrow and illness and pain will be defeated. And then we will set up our permanent homes 
in the new heaven and the new earth. And so in a sense, although we're not living in tents literally, I mean some of us might be, but although we're not living in tents literally, we are living in this temporary situation where we look back to the redemption that Christ has achieved, but we look forward to something greater and more glorious to come when Jesus will return, the fulfilment of all the promises of God in that wonderful, wonderful moment. And so I'm going to pause in this moment in my sermon and I want us to take communion together. If you're a Christian, you are invited to share communion with us. And I know that um, several of you won't have got your stuff, so please go to the table now. And if, if you're a Christian, you'd like to join in this moment with us, please do take a piece of bread and a little cup of juice as we celebrate communion together. If you are not a Christian, please, um, we're just... We're so grateful that you're here, and we love that you're here. We just uh, ask you to observe, observe this moment and to understand, uh, understand, hopefully, through my preaching what's going on. But we're going to take, take communion together. And as we do it, we're going to look back, and we're going to say, Jesus gave his body on the cross for my sin in order that I might be rescued, in order that I might be saved. And so let's think of Jesus giving his body upon the cross as we eat the bread together. And we're going to take the cup. And as we drink the cup, we're also going to look back and remember that Jesus' blood was shed. But we're also going to look forward. This is, uh, this is a moment of declaring the second coming of Jesus Christ, the victory and the, the, the complete salvation, the fullness of joy, which we will all experience when Jesus comes again in glory. So let's take the cup together. Remember, Jesus' blood was shed and he is coming again in glory. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper together and reflect on Nehemiah chapter 8 and this revival that happened in the city of Jerusalem, I pray that we might have a hunger for the word that leads to understanding of who God is and what he has done and that leads us to worship him. I pray that we would find a joy in God, that we would fix our attention on God glory, his strength, his power, his salvation, his love. That we wouldn't just read the word and study the word, but that we would do what it says. And most importantly, that we would find salvation in Christ. We celebrate the communion not as a ritual because we have to, but because we love Jesus. And Jesus gave us this feast of the Lord's Supper to remember his death for us, but also to remember his coming again, which will happen in the future. And so I pray that maybe for the first time you would believe in Christ, you would believe in his life, his death, his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. You would not rely on your own goodness for salvation, but trust in Jesus. For this is what the Lord's Supper, this is what the communion teaches us. This feast is about looking back to the salvation that has been granted to us and looking forward to the wonderful new heavens and the new earth to come. I trust this word has encouraged you, strengthened you, challenged you. And I'm going to ask you now to join me in praying, not just for ourselves, but for this region, 
for the, these characteristics that are shown in Nehemiah 8 would happen across our town, our region, even this country. I'm going to use the word revival because I long to see God move in power. I hope you do too. I long to see God move and call people into this hunger and joy and salvation in Christ. So let's pray together for ourselves, but also for um, this town, this region, this nation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what you did in Nehemiah chapter 8 was astonishing. You called this city of people who had been struggling for days to rebuild the wall, and you just, you just moved in them and gave them this hunger for you, a love for you that manifested itself in a hunger for the word, desperate to hear the word read and to understand it, that manifested itself in worship and that manifested itself in joy. They found their joy in you and they rejoiced for several days because of who you are and all you've done. Lord, I pray that you would place that same hunger in our hearts. Give us a desire and a love for you that we would love to read your word. I pray you would place that same joy in our hearts. Fill us with the joy of the Lord and from that place of of knowing your joy, would we draw strength? May we rejoice in every situation, however weak we're feeling, because you are our joy and your strength is unfailing and never-ending. I pray we would not just be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word, that we would live out what you teach us and share with us through your gospel and through the Bible. Lord, I pray this not only for ourselves, but also for this region, Lord God. I pray that you would astonish us. I pray that you would astound us, that there would be people coming and saying, can you read the Bible to me? Can you explain the Bible to me? I just want to understand. God's been speaking to me. God's been moving in me. God's been doing something. And I just want you to please, someone, just share with me what the truth of the Bible is. And I pray that in that, in that hunger for the word, in a joy given for you, many people, hundreds, thousands, even millions, Lord, would, would find salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray as a church, we would begin to see people again, hearing the gospel and believing, coming to salvation, coming into your family, Lord. Do it. We know that you are able to do it. We know that you've done mighty works throughout history. And Lord, we're praying and asking that what was seen in Nehemiah chapter 8 would be seen again in the town of Fareham, in this region of the world, in the surrounding villages, in Gosport, in Hedge End, in Hampshire, and even across the United Kingdom, Lord God. Would you do an amazing work as people hunger after you, find joy in you, and ultimately find salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you for your resurrection from the dead. We thank you that you are coming again in glory to put all, all the world to rights. And so we rejoice in that. And we celebrate and thank you for all you've done for us. I pray again, give us hunger for the word. Give us joy in the Lord and make us doers as well as hearers of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.